Welcome to uh, another interview held by EFSAS, and this time um, we have uh, with us in person Mr. Uh, Burzin Wagmer. Burzin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, Mr. Uh, Burzin Wagmer is, of course, also an uh, EFSAS uh, research fellow for years. Um, the viewers might also remember him from recently holding a keynote lecture on our conference, uh, which we held at the Free University in Amsterdam on Jammu and Kashmir and uh, radicalization and terrorism. Um, Mr. Wagner is also the former inaugural visiting India fellow at RUSI UK. Uh, he holds affiliations with the SOAS South Asia Institute in London. Um, he's a consultant, a commentator. Uh, and again, I've all, all, I always try to mention this, but the list is uh, long. Burzin speaks a lot of languages, French, German, Italian, Persian, Russian, reading and research skills uh, incorporate Urdu, Pashto, Balochi, Kashmiri, Hindi, Gujarati, Marathi and all those Indo-Iranian dialects and communities along the Irano Park, Sino Park and Afpark borders. So Burzin, welcome uh, and I've, I'm sure I've missed a lot of uh, designations of yours. Uh, as we as we as we have spoken about this earlier, uh, today we are going to talk mostly about you uh, being an historian about uh, partition, partition in South Asia after the British has left. So before we come to that, maybe you can tell us something about yourself, how you, you know, ended up being an historian on this part of the world. Well, thank you, Junaid. Uh, South Asia, South Asia per se, or rather Pakistan studies is what I really do, more so than Indian studies or Bangladesh studies or Sri Lankan studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pakistan studies is ancillary to my work uh, since I'm primarily an Iranist by training. Uh, I work on Iran and Central Asia, the ancient and modern Silk Road uh, periods, and obviously Northern Pakistan was very much a part of historically speaking, the Indo-Iranian linguistic frontier zone. That may be interested, of course, in what passes for ancient Pakistan, but also, given my earlier work, my bachelor's, which I secured in Virginia in international relations, was in the modern Middle East and modern South Asian studies. So I have managed to keep that up. And with that in mind, of course, uh, the history of the subcontinent uh, looms large in my studies, has been so. I'd also worked on Bangladesh and the Civil War in 1971 and how that came about to be, and how partition in effect has been a three-way process if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. But coming back to partition which you've asked me for today, uh, certain preliminaries must be in mind before we proceed with the question. Uh, of course, the Muslim factor, the Muslim card looms large with partition because one is given to understand in rather superficial terms that the British upon departure wanted uh, to see a Hindu India and a Muslim Pakistan and that's that and two dominions came to existence and that would have sorted the matter out and clearly it has not. Moreover, there is this contentious fallacy and a very misguided, downright disastrous one within Indian and Pakistani Hindu Muslim Sikh mindsets of divide and rule. What do I mean by that? That a policy of what may be considered divide and rule in an earlier period of the imperial era was not necessarily to London's benefit uh, during the closing years of the Raj. Mm -hmm. 
and it was in London's interest, London's self-interest, and self-interest does loom large in the aspect of all states and political behaviour. It was in British self-interest to see a united, secure India and leave it at that. Deriving pride in the fact that they had an army, an army which had distinguished itself just recently in the Second World War. It had also done in the First World War, but in the Second War, which concluded in 1945 as the largest voluntary army in the world. The British had no interest in seeing that divided, much less assets, Indian railways, uh, communications, industries, there were little industries, not much, uh, a unified steel frame of a civil service, uh, an education sector, so on and so forth. They had no interest in seeing any of that divide. Now you will say, but that is what we are given to understand. But I am again challenging and pushing you back on that divided rule, divide and quit was not a policy after the war, uh, Junaid, because a united India, again to iterate to your viewers, was in their self-interest. A united India with a united army, a united India which would have been a within the sterling area, the Commonwealth area, a huge market for raw resources, but also finished goods and services from London as the metropolis and from other parts of the Commonwealth. A united India, which uh, was very critical on shipping and now happening to be air routes, which would come air transport would just become after the war, as you know, on its way to Australasia. And when I say Australasia, also British colonies and dependencies, which were still there in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. It was India getting independence, not other parts of Asia as such, or other British uh, parts of the empire. So <clears throat> India was important for transportation links, communication links, markets, human resources, and a united army that also could have served the empire, or rather served the Commonwealth to be, if the British needed at short notice, in West Asia, namely the Middle East, where they were still ruling and would continue to rule until 1971, when Bahrain, Qatar, UAE and Oman got their independence. The oil-producing region. When, when you talk about this three-way process, what do you mean? Well, uh, what happened was that partition occurred in 1947, mm -hmm. when actually transfer of power was supposed to have taken place by June 1948, but Mountbatten brought the date a bit earlier, and I'll come to that too because it's important to, to do so. And then when East Pakistan unraveled after 1969 and became an independent state at the end of December 1971 and a republic come January 72 after the third Indo-Pakistan war, which uh, would not have really occurred in the sense that the genocide could have continued. And um, but there was no there was talk of secession and East Pakistani East Bengal's self-determination take place. True. But uh, we do know now from records, archival sources, that uh, there was some talk which would have taken place, which, repeat, would have taken place between the military junta and the East Bengal leaders. Uh, for a long time, we were given to understand that there was a breakdown between Rahul Bindi, the garrison, and the Awami League, and of course, Bhutto and the PPP as a three-way process. Mm. But I put this to you, Junaid, and to your viewers. There was no breakdown of talks. Why is your next question? Mm -hmm. Because there were no talks. Okay. The talks never took place. Bhutto flew in to in late March 71, but the talks never really took place. And the military just decided, the military snapped under Yaya Khan. They pulled the rug. And so 
and then Operation Searchlight was unleashed, and the rest, as you know, the genocide and the atrocities. There have been a huge loss of lives, of course, when you refer to 71. And as, as a historian, if you have to put into perspective, British India, like today's India, would, you know, would be half of Europe. Oh, yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah. British India would be almost as big as Europe. Western Europe, at least, yeah. yeah. So... From Balochistan to Burma, literally. Yeah, so if you have to put... And then, of course, from, from, from the north up to... So if you have to put that as an historian into perspective for the viewers who are not so very well-versed with, 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 with the subcontinent, how big of an exercise, how big of a human tragedy was it? Well, partition figures are notoriously debatable, but there is no, tell, uh, no denying the fact that during that summer, the exodus that took place, about at least um, 12, between 12 to 15 million transferred, literally stumbled across unknown borders. And I say unknown because it's only after 48 to 72 hours after transfer of power took place on Thursday, 14th August 47, Thursday, 14th August 47 for Pakistan, Friday, 15th August midnight for India. Mm -hmm. That was the arrangement. Uh, it was only after the weekend that uh, Mountbatten, who had taken a pledge from Jinnah Nehru that there's been no bickering after transfer power takes place, you will accept the borders that have been drawn up by the Ratcliffe Commission report, the Boundary Commission report. When independence took place and Nehru's so-called freedom at midnight took place, speech uh, occurred, just remember, and it is something to note, uh, when Nehru says India wakes to life and freedom, which India was that, pray tell? Because there was no border of it and neither did Nehru know where the borders lay. Mm. He had some idea of it and people did have some idea of it. But on the morning of 14th and 15th August respectively, neither Jinnah nor Nehru nor the Indian masses or the soon-to-be Pakistani masses knew where the borders because lay. Because you had a lot of princely states as well. 565, yes. which had to be integrated until they were uh, by 1950, all that really took place when Vallabhai Patel as Deputy Prime Minister and Home Minister died in December 1950 and it is to his credit as he's known popularly as the Bismarck of India for having united India by having these states come to a reasonable arrangement as did some states who joined the Pakistani dominion which uh, Bawalpur, Kherpur and the others uh, which occurred with, uh, who had an arrangement with Jinnah as such but nobody knew what, what the borders were and that fed into the fear which was already playing since September 46 and direct action day and the Calcutta riots that was a domino effect because those riots uh, in Calcutta for 72 hours which saw over five to six thousand killed led to retributions which always takes place in the subcontinent plus rumors which always takes its toll nothing new even after half a century on as we speak here and then they spread to Bihar, they spread to other parts of East Bengal, they made their way to North India and finally reached the Punjab by December 46, early Jan 47. And there was a complete breakdown uh, in relationships uh, between communities there. M many people also... And uh, also, if I may, yeah. that not just a breakdown. And of course, when we talk about the present in India and Pakistan, but also then, uh, Jure, this is important, the police was hopelessly communal. It's not a new if, uh, phenomenon that uh, the Indian or Pakistani police forces are communal and would side with their communities during riots. They were absolutely shot through with communism and sectarianism back in 47-2 and would stand by and watch the opposite community uh, be treated with atrocities. 
be visited by atrocities as uh, by one of their owners they look on. And it, it, the situation was a mess and the British were desperate with all this to get out and scuttle. So that comes in, uh, what I mean to say is that um, the divide in, by this time, of course, they had to give up because uh, Muslim League intransigence and Congress intransigence uh, did not see that there would be any modus vivendi. And talks had been going on with the penultimate viceroy, Lord Wavell. Uh, and Wavell had not achieved anything. He was going around in circles. London realized that and decided this has to end at some point. Actually, the Labour government was fed up, which had come into power after July 45, and therefore sent out Mountbatten, and Mountbatten was asked to do a surgical job. Perhaps you would say it's a bit too surgical. Perhaps you'd say I'm apologizing as a British historian, but Mountbatten's remit was, you have to see powers transfer into responsible Indian hands by June 48. Hold that as a gun to their temple, their respective temples, oh. Nehru's and Jinnah's that you have to come to some modus vivendi because we are leaving. And even then, at this stage, when Mountbatten arrived in March 47, and yes, he arrived in March 47 and independence was given in August 47. So he was just determined to railroad through come no matter what. And Nehru and Jinnah slipped up, as did other uh, leaders, thinking, will the British go or not? Or they've always been just stringing us along. But this time, Mountbatten was calling their bluff. We are getting out, whether you like it or not. Hell or high water, sort yourselves out. And it hit them hard. It did hit them hard after a month of talks with Mountbatten around April 47, that this time the British are leaving and they would make private entreaties to Mountbatten when they would meet him in meetings at night, including Patel on record and Jinnah in separate meetings. Lord Louis, slow down. And he's like, no. We are leaving because as intelligence reports and the situation in London was that it is fast getting out of our hands. Daily riots, daily tamasha that was taking place in every city across the provinces. Uh, the Navy ratings that had, uh, naval mutiny that had occurred in February 46, which also brought back to the, the British horrors of the revolt of 1857. There was talk of uh, mutiny within the Air Force barracks also. The place was becoming utterly ungovernable. And this also must be noted today that, how do I put it? Indians had lost their fear of the British. They just did what they wanted. So, and now the, <coughs> now, now the partition happened, and of course, there was human, <coughs> both countries, of course, of course, also because of their ideological basis, but they went on different tra trajectories. Some people, and mostly political analysts, have said this, and maybe you can throw some light on it as a historian, is that why both countries have taken two very, very different trajectories. Of course, India became a secular republic. <coughs> Pakistan, most of its time, was under military rule. Excuse me. Yeah. And these, um, these analysts, and, and you as a historian can confirm that or not, is that they say that this happened because the transfer of land, military forces, bureau bureaucracy. If, <coughs> for example, in Pakistan's case, this was done, uh, that Pakistan inherited smaller part of the land, but much more of the army. Is, is, that, is, that, is there some truth in no, that? No, Pakistan inherited lesser resources, lesser land, lesser everything, lesser division of assets too. But 33% of the Indian army, <coughs> while its land mass was uh, just under 20%. Because they opted to join Pakistan. 
and traditionally Muslims were there in the army mm. and Muslims were also there um, traditionally in the intelligence corps of the Royal Indian Army and Karachi was also the headquarters of the intelligence corps which even if you've not asked gives you a, should point out that the ISI was formed in 1948 and, a, and had a head start under Australian actually on secondment to the British Army Cawthorn, Cawthorn sorry and uh, it made sense because Muslims were traditionally in the IC intelligence corps. India's intelligence agency was only set up in 1968 and Muslims had a good standing in the army so yes it depends on which side the officers did, uh, the officer corps that is to say under formerly under the King's Commission who decided to join <clears throat> but Pakistan started on a lesser footing but then it decided given its insecurity and its paranoia which has never left it since then uh, to see that it would play Cold War politics which were just emerging and ingratiate itself to one or other of the superpowers. Jinnah had already totted up and calculated that being close to the Soviet Union he would play the card and he was willing to cooperate with the USA which he did and the uh, Anglo-Pakistan uh, uh, Defence Pact Agreement came into effect from 1954, as we know, to which one traces the antecedents of the US-Pakistan relationship with all its bizarre twists and turns, as we've seen over the decades. Jinnah was dead by then, but his successors knew that they had to latch onto someone in order to shield themselves from an India which would want to unravel partition and absorb, uh, reabsorb the former dominion uh, former Western uh, part of the Indian Empire again. And in Pakistan, the <coughs> democratization of institutions never happened. While Jinnah, of course, promised that. Jinnah promised a democracy. Uh, Jinnah promised uh, freedom of religion. And of course, we, we can look at it 75, 76 years later. But even very quickly after Pakistan was established, these things were thrown out of the window. While in India, institutions were built up from scratch there was democratization of the society yes in terms of economy because maybe india being uh, a bigger country but in the 1960s pakistan's economy was was quite fine and stable, stable. Yeah. so why this difference what happened um nehru had always had something of a vision and a plan mm -hmm. jinnah lacked a vision it must be pointed out right away Jinnah was driven by, <clears throat> as a politician and as a lawyer, and lawyers being fixated on the end result and winning a case or clinching the deal was with getting Pakistan. He had no time to think about other aspects, a foreign policy, an economic plan, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. All that could wait until he actually got what he wanted from the British at the time of departure, a new dominion, a new Muslim homeland. Nehru, as you see from his writings, even from the 40s and 30s, had something of a plan. There's the 1944 Bombay Plan, which was drawn up by Indian entrepreneurs, including J.R.D. Tata. Uh, that is something of a blueprint which India had, Indians were thinking of, and I point this out to you, even before the five-year planning was executed after independence. Correspondingly, there's nothing about Muslim intellectuals or Muslim entrepreneurs who went on to form Pakistan of a so-called 1944 Bombay Plan. Mm -hmm. There was no question of the Muslim League establishing itself uh, with um, even the Islamic world. Though Jinnah did make a trip uh, in December 46 to Cairo, that's 
that was his only only foreign trip to an Islamic capital to make a plea for Pakistan, which was literally on the verge of happening a few months later. So Pakistan never really had a plan to go ahead with. Nehru had an idea. Come 50, uh, Zamindari was abolished and land reforms took place in India, which were never really undertaken in Pakistan. Heavy industrialization and indigenization of industries took place with the five-year planning because Nehru was obviously attuned to socialism. <clears throat> its deleterious effects later and the so-called license permit quota Raj is another kettle of fish, which we can discuss. But he had decided that, uh, that a decolonized state needs to stand on its feet and heavy industry had to be erected and get going, which of course flew in the face of even what Gandhi wanted as a land of cooperatives and agricultural societies. Nehru was fired up by imaginings of Soviet planning and he wanted to execute that in India. All this was happening in India because there was a civil service to do all that. True, there was a civil service in Pakistan too, but they got distracted and engaged in politicking with the shuffling of governor generals coming and going and prime ministers and each backstabbing the other until, of course, the military brought down the curtain in October 58 and Ayub Khan uh, and Iskandar Mirza pulled off the coup. And from then there was, you could say, a semblance of stability with military rule. Not that military rule has ever been led to stability in Pakistan or even led to prosperity. That's a fallacy uh, that is put out by proponents who, are, who talk about military rule in Pakistan and their so-called doctrine of necessity. And that's why we had the military to step in. One hears that even as recent as October 99 when the coup took place and Musharraf was flying back from Colombo. And he made it to Karachi eventually on ground. But... It is these reasons where Pakistan got distracted with its own self-destructive politics. And then um, it, at the same time, it decided that it wanted to uh, play a part in the Cold War and ingratiate itself to the US, but really never did anything. Okay, on one salient aspect it did, in that Peshawar, outside Peshawar, the CIA Air Force facility was open for the U-2 spy flights. And of course, Gary Powers uh, was caught out by the... Uh, in. In Russia as you know and the U-2 flying incident took place so there was cooperation tacit cooperation uh, and Pakistan tried to show itself as a Cold War asset but Pakistan never sent any troops to Vietnam which the US would have appreciated and wanted so it was tactical enough to just support as much as possibly could to the US but not to go all the way by by hedging its and leveraging its cards. Can, can you throw some light on the numbers of when Pakistan was founded and India became independent. What were the numbers in terms of religious groups? Ah, uh, approximate numbers only. Yeah. Uh, at the time of partition and transfer of power, uh, there were more non-Muslims as a numerical majority within what became the two units of Pakistan, West and East Pakistan. Mm -hmm. More of them were concentrated in East Pakistan. So. By the time the civil war happens and East Pakistan unravels, uh, at that point in time when the last census was done, we have in, at least in East Pakistan, the non-Muslim population, predominantly Hindu, but also with a smattering of Buddhists and Christians, stood at about 22%. After 1971, we see, and what is today's present-day Bangladesh, the Hindu population is about a good 12 to 14% at most, not more. And Pakistan's non-Muslim population now, yes, 3%. Yes, just give or take 3%, uh, which comprises of uh, 
a million odd Hindus. The Hindus themselves dispute the fact that we are more than that, but that the government uh, officially downplays our numbers. I have read uh, reports of that. Do you include the Amadis here? Three uh, percent. I I wouldn't know how they would. Well, the Amadis would not be counted. Uh, they would be officially deemed as non-Muslims. Yes, exactly. They would officially be deemed as non-Muslims. But I don't know what they would put on the census roll because they're not allowed to describe themselves as Muslims. And how was the number in <clears throat> India uh, in terms of Muslim population? Now we know it's 14% of the population, which is huge. I think India has 200 million Muslims and Pakistan is at 212, 215. Yes. So, it's, it's very so much for partition. Yeah, so much because, for partition. Uh, because even after, even at the transfer of power took place, yeah. a good 40% of British India Muslims remain within the dominion of India. Forty percent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, within and uh, within what became the, the borders of India as yes. it's formed, uh, and so and you had forty five percent on the other side. So you just wonder. Uh, so much for a Muslim homeland, which is proposed as a Muslim Zion, uh, and obviously not all Muslims thought similarly. Uh, that's another stereotype to be demolished. Is it also true that the Muslims who, at the time of partition, who later on went to Pakistan? In the uh, late 40s. Yes. That they were seen as lesser uh, inhabitants or like the Mahajas? Yes. Well, they, not, just, uh, not just late 40s. They were the ones. They were, up until... they, they were the ones who left actually in 47. The Muslim Zionists, as I put it to you. Mm -hmm. People who left for Pakistan to form what would be their new homeland for better prospects. Uh, presumably without Hindu competition. That they could flourish freely. Prosper. And also pursue their faith to the fullest. That was what was sold to them as the Pakistan idea and the Muslim homeland. Fair point. Okay. Uh, that it went sour is another matter. But they didn't go... Some of them did go after 47, after transfer of power. But a lot of them left on the eve of partition and during the first few harrowing months of killings occurring as it were. They are known as, from the Arabic word muhajir, to, from the Arabic term hijra, to emigrate as uh, the Prophet did from uh, Mecca, to Medina, yeah. and which starts the dating of the Muslim calendar in 622 AD. Uh, so hence the, 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 the nominal compound muhajir, yeah. one who emigrates. Mm -hmm. And it is imbued with uh, confessional overtones because they were going to what is going to be an ostensible Muslim homeland, where Muslims would freely... Uh, flourish to the fullest and find their fullest, finest potential. Uh, and they would also constitute what was to be and still is Pakistan's intellectual cadre. These okay. Muslim Zionists, they would fulfill the white collar jobs as teachers, doctors, lawyers, engineers of the Pakistan uh, to be the new state, its foreign services, its uh, bureaucracy, so on and so forth. They were what were you could call the Indian professional, talented Muslim middle class, which left India bereft of it, obviously, because they decided to opt for Pakistan. And uh, most of them came from what were the United Provinces, now known as the state of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. But of course, it was a pan-India phenomenon. They also came from other parts, including Tamil Nadu and Kerala. You still have Malayalam and Tamil speaking Muslims, or at least maybe not anymore in Karachi, but some did leave. Okay. Some left from Gujarat also. Jinnah was from Gujarat itself, as you know. Some left from what were the central provinces, that is today's Madhya Pradesh. And of course the Delhi region and Aligarh, and the University at Aligarh, which had become something of a 
clearinghouse for Muslim intellectual thought in the late 40s, where these uh, young Muslim youth were fired up by imaginings of having a new homeland. And of course, after independence, Arigal came under uh, suspicion with the new past to be in Delhi as seen as a place which somehow spawned separatist tendencies. Which to an extent... It did. It did. But the ones who did it had left. <laughs> so that was that. But AMU as a campus, as a varsity, did come under uh, spotlight uh, after independence because it was from where most of these people had left. And you have found it recently <clears throat> when we are having lunch and we are going to do a conference on this soon with you uh, as, as, as giving a keynote lecture on this. You said something very interesting, something called contested sovereignties. Yeah. And you talked about these border areas, whether it's uh, Burma, whether it's Afghanistan, uh, in the north, Kashmir, uh, these, these con uh, Balochistan even. You know, how much, how much of this, this contested uh, sovereignties um, was due to partition or was a consequence of partition? Um, I wouldn't exactly attribute it to partition because again, Junaid, as a historian, my take is it feeds into the popular fashionable narrative of divide and quit, which is not what the what the evidence tells us now. If you see documents in London, mm -hmm. which are declassified, which are now available as, uh, as scholarly archives to see, that the British at the end, towards the end, after the war, it was all very well before for, before the war started in 39 Junaid, to see that Hindus and Muslims could be somehow separated and could be, you know, kept apart from each other because then it would make it easier for so-called London to rule. But this was not the end game towards after the war when they wanted to see a unite India, when it, when it was writing on the wall that they had to leave. And uh, it was decided that a united India, as I give you the reasons, was in British self-interest. Why would anyone shoot themselves in the foot? They wanted a united place because it was to benefit them, the Commonwealth, the Sterling area, so on and so forth. So these problems are not necessarily inherited from the Raj. You could say that India and Pakistan could have more imaginatively constructed federations. They've had 75 years to do so. Uh, they had enough time and effort and resources to do so. India and Pakistan were not found wanting on that front. But in all of the peripheral regions of India and Pakistan, you have what the center would call troublesome provinces and troublesome people, which are vexing to the center. Now, that may be so, but then it is, for the, it is incumbent upon the respective centers to have sorted themselves out and to see how such populations could be integrated and could be made part of an integrated citizenry. Why is it that this population in this part feels disillusioned, but someone else more closer to, towards the metropolis doesn't? Clearly something has gone wrong mm -hmm. here. Why does this person have no problem flying uh, the white and green flag on 14th August or the Indian tricolor the next morning, uh, but someone there does? Mm -hmm. Resentment builds up due to socioeconomic factors, due to disillusionment, due to alienation. Yeah, don't spill the beans too much on that because that is a, is, is a conference which we're going to hold when yeah. India and Pakistan, when it's 80 years of independence or 80 years of, 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 of contested, uh, you know, sovereignties. Now, coming again to 
to India and Pakistan. Now, you, you've talked about how partition took place, how the populations were. Now, and then so much for partition because almost an equal number of Muslims kept living in India or in the dominion of India. Now, when we move on a few years, uh, India had, um, had an election. They came up with a constitution. And after 1950, the first uh, elections took place. Yes. Universal Arab franchise. A constitution was promulgated in 19, January 26, 1950, While which Pakistan's, was already working from 1948 uh, uh, 49 onwards. The constitution came in place in the 70s. In March 1956, the first constitution. Mm -hmm. And until then, Pakistan, which tells you how it was working. Uh, no, was, uh, I mean, uh, the first constitution first done, done by an elected government. Came in the seventies under Bhutto. And seventy-three. Yeah. Which actually is the third constitution. Mm -hmm. But between forty-seven and fifty-six, Pakistan still worked a part of it under well, what is called the Directive Objectives, uh, Objectives Resolution, uh, uh, and the Government of India Act, nineteen thirty-five. It still operated okay. on part of that, and they finally agreed to have a constitution because there were so many contending factors. <clears throat> Sorry, and that it only came about to be on twenty-third March, nineteen fifty-six. But then Ayub Khan dissolved it and they had a new constitution in 1962 that uh, saw its period and then the one that we are living with is the one that was promulgated by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto for a new dismembered dejected citizenry in the aftermath of Bangladesh uh, after 73. Why, when you talk and then you, you came to Bangladesh so let, let's discuss this as well because it's it's part of British or what part of British India is now the third country coming out of it uh, at least from, from, from the two dominions. Bangladesh was majority Muslim. Yes, Sunni Hanafi Muslim. Yes. And it was Sunni Hanafi Muslim, just as West Pakistan was Sunni Hanafi Muslim, mm -hmm. which tells you something about the so-called glue of Islam or the bond of Islam and how it frayed. It was, it was hollow from the start. It was shambolic. And it wasn't even a Sunni Shia sectarian no. fight where one could have, I don't wish to offer an apology or an excuse for what happened, but one could say, oh, well, this is why that happened. Yeah. But the genocide and the rapes and the atrocities and the murders and the collective killings, including in mosques and outside mosques and detention centers with Razakars uh, operating as uh, quizlings, as collaborators, uh, the Urdu speaking Muhajir uh, Bihari element uh, assisting the military junta, military administration in place by that time under Tika Khan's remit. All of them were all predominantly Sunni Hanafi. East Bengal does have a Shia population, just as West Bengal does, but it's uh, small in the main. So, but culturally, East and West Pakistan was very different. They were different countries altogether to start with. Mm -hmm. They were East and West. It's like comparing Spain and the Czech Republic. Okay. I couldn't put it better. Mm -hmm. So what, what's come between both? Well, they're both whites and they're both Christians. And, well, what else? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. So, and, and linguistically, culturally, Politically, their worldviews, their mentality was utterly distinct. And were they treated even before 71, from 47 until 71? It was a long period that they were treated very differently, <coughs> very disadvantaged. Uh, were they really treated very badly by West Pakistan or is this, is this something they came up with later too? It's a bit of both. Okay. Uh, it's not a myth that they were treated shabbily. Mm -hmm. They were treated shabbily and as second class citizens and grievances were always there from the outset. Uh, but in Pakistan's favour, if I may put it this way, I, say, I would say 
Pakistan did make some effort, the civil service and the bureaucrats, uh, the governing powers to be in West Pakistan, did make some effort to um, bring them on board. What do I mean by that? Today, if you see um, street signage across Pakistan, not anymore, but take Islamabad University's main plaque, mm -hmm. it's trilingual. Yeah. Just as streets always were, uh, all streets were in English, Bengali and Urdu, uh, even in West Pakistan. Um, there was some attempt made to harmonize the population by sending West Pakistan civil service officers mandatorily on secondment for duty to East Pakistan and transferring East Pakistan civil service ones to West Pakistan so that they actually come to know the other end of the country. Mm -hmm. So these, you could say these were cosmetic gestures or hollow gestures, but something was done to that effect. It wasn't, nothing was done by them. Uh, I mean, they reconciled themselves to having Bengali as a language and accepting it that it's going to be an official provincial linked language, despite Jinnah saying no and creating the chaos which he did on his first and only visit to the province. But I think there was a civil servant named by the name of in West Pakistan, Shahab. Uh, Kudratullah Shah, Kudratullah yes, Shah. Nama. Yeah. who wrote this book where he said that they were, when it came to aid from, from the yes, US. Yes, I'm coming to that bit. Okay. That's where I come in where it didn't take place. I, I, I said, these were gestures made. It's, I'm saying West Pakistan did not not do anything from day one. Mm -hmm. It did make some attempts, but the fact is that they didn't pay off in the end. That Which is why what happened happened. But at the same time, I don't want to exaggerate the East Pakistan bit, but I want to take in part and very seriously consider East Pakistan grievances too, without exa over-exaggerating or killing the, over-killing the case. That yes, uh, the Pakistan economy worked on jute because it had a monopoly, globally speaking, and whatever was earned as hard-earned foreign exchange did come in, most of it would be devoted to development in the West and not in the Eastern province. And that was one of Mujibur Rahman's uh, grievances, the six, Mujib's six points, because within the six points, Junaid, he wanted separate currencies. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted that, along with other uh, different parliaments and, you know, a confederation, not a uh, federation as such. Uh, there were, those palpable grievances were there, and particularly after that awful cyclone Bola which took place, uh, and a West Pakistan administration was seen as utterly callous towards the deaths and that mounted up in East Pakistan. That was a harbinger of things to come, even before the actual election that took place. And you, you, you talk about, again, you talk about both the parts. So it's a, actually, it was a geographical, historic absurdity from the word go, what happened on the morning of 14th August 47. But Juliet, as a historian, when I look back, I have to, I must say this, um, that the very fact that they pulled off this show for a good 24 years, when one didn't expect them to do it from day one is something. So some credit to the devil on that count. Okay, now now you just you just compared both parts, saying that they both were Sunni Hanfi. Uh, culturally they were extremely different. And then twenty-five years twenty-four, 24 years, years later, twenty-four years they later. have the first elections yes. as a Muslim country and they can't agree on it. Yes. And the country splits. But now now India, much bigger country, uh take Kerala or, or take, take Karnataka and take West Bengal, different religions, different people, different languages, different eating habits, the same as you just mentioned, Spain and Czech Republic. Why didn't India split? What, what, you know, what did India write 
with the Pakistan because it would be more if you take yes. this example it would be more natural for India to split in bits than, than, these than a country which ostensibly was set up as one book one prophet one people exactly and still it never does so what did India write which well you know it goes back to Nehru's vision okay. which may not be very popular in the current context to talk about or to uh, realize but uh, consensual politics and what is a civil society by definition, Junaid, when you study political science 101? As I was taught years ago by my teacher, Colonel Norton in Boston, a civil society is one where you agree to disagree civilly. Okay. I can't put it better. Yeah. And that is how India accommodated this varying use of people with such bizarre cults, religions, languages, worldviews and the like, who could never have reconciled themselves to being a singular polity and to build and integrate and assimilate them and to try to iron out these differences and come to some reasonable modus vivendi to exist and moreover to coexist. That happened with the democratic setup. Some could say and some do often say in India that we should have had an autocracy and a dictatorship. If you do that, the toilets would be clean, railways would run on time. You hear these kind of talks at dinner parties. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you look at it as an academic, mostly at elite dinner parties and pseudo elite dinner parties, <laughs> that too. But you know, my point is this, and this is a very serious one I want to say is in one sense, Nehru was no autocrat, but you could say he, he could have been if he wanted to, but he had no choice but to make India a democracy because you cannot run a place like this without having a semblance of tolerance and autonomy to so many constituent units. So the only way India could function was by being a democracy and not by being a police state because you simply couldn't run it like that. And even the British did not run it as a police state. Uh, it was pretty fluid. Uh, a laissez-faire economy was run in the pre-47 period because if that was not the case, Junaid, how would you have Tata Steel uh, making money in, in, in the pre-47 period? The Billas were there and the Bajajis and other families were there. So there was a lot of leverage at the local level and by the time the British departed in 47, the middle and uh, lower levels of administration were completely Indianized. At the time of departure, barely a thousand whites were running the show at the top. Most of the place was self-governing uh, as such uh, run by It Indians. came to be founded as a federation of states. Yes. So there was a lot of autonomy to people. Yeah. Is it also because of the fact that, you know, if you speak to Indian and Pakistani people, whether it's a Muslim, let, let's take a Muslim, let's take an Indian Muslim. And, and a Pakistani would always first feel a Muslim and then a Pakistani. And an Indian would mostly identify himself as a Bengali Indian or as a Gujarati Indian and then give, uh, you know, tell which religion uh, he or she would belong to. So this concept of nationalism is basically anathema to Islam. I mean, nation states as such should not exist in the world of Islam, if you really think about exactly. it. Exactly. And one should not have 57 states who constitute the organization of Islamic cooperation, mm -hmm. OIC states. But that's ground realities. That's life. And Muslims have to accommodate themselves, and they have, and just get down to realities in having states. And building identities predicated on those states as citizens of those states. Exactly. So this... This is something which goes against the grain of Islam. Grain of, of scripturalist. Yes. Okay. Now, when we when we when we come to this, um, 
but pakistan you know after it had from 47 to 71 it has of course this bigger brother next door it uh, there was animosity between both countries after 71 this animosity of course increased a lot because the pakistanis blamed the indians for breaking up their country and um, which was fed into pakistan's paranoia uh, the dismemberment after 71 and also uh, after indira's peaceful nuclear explosion of 74 in the smiling and uh, that operation smiling buddha uh, and that was which led Bhutto to his famous comment of eating grass because they were, which feeds back again to the starts of 47 and to unravel partition and to create a so-called Akhand Bharat and that they want to undo and absorb and not just absorb but even decimate Muslims uh, is the narrative that has kept Pakistan going or rather which should I qualify and say the Pakistani powers that be, the Pakistani deep state wants to keep burnishing and feeding its population so as to distract them from their problems. No, that, this is an interesting point you make, and that is something I want I want to ask you, is that you talk about this paranoia of Pakistan. I sometimes get the feeling that if, again, this paranoia has stopped Pakistan from progressing economically. At the other hand, sometimes people say, and I also, you know, I, I, can, I, I, can, I can listen to that, if there was no this paranoia created, by the powers that be in Pakistan, Pakistan would not have survived. It is also this paranoia which keeps it alive. It, it keeps it alive and it keeps the custodians who want to perpetuate it alive because they're in business. It mm. lines their purses. It affords them uh, credentials and legitimizes their credentials and keeps them in business mm. and in the chair. Uh, if they were to remove that aspect and this insecurity siege mentality, okay, you can say that... Um, uh, the dismemberment of Pakistan for argument's sake took place because the Indian army came and invaded East Pakistan and assisted uh, East Pakistani East Bengal guerrillas to liberate themselves. Millions of people were killed. Yes, but again, as I say, Jared, when I spoke about divide and quit, another fallacy. Go back to the records. Again and again, I iterate as a historian. Go back to the records. Divide and rule was not a British policy. Dividing Pakistan was not Indira Gandhi's first knee-jerk option. She did not want to balkanize Pakistan on her doorstep, as the records show, including the White House cables and telegrams, which have been published by Oxford University Press show. It was not in Indira's interest, and it could not be in any Indian government's interest, when a country is having a civil war next door to disintegrate and go into meltdown. Why would you want that on your doorstep, to create, which would create problems for you? It had to so, deal with refugees. Which it did later, mm -hmm. but I'm talking about March 71 when uh, the genocide was unleashed in the first few months, say, between March and May. It, so, again, when Pakistanis say that India wanted to unravel partition and Akhand Bharat and to make Bangladesh just a Bengali satellite stooge, which is utter nonsense, Bangladesh has its own independent policies, it gives India a piece of its mind every so often, often when it wants to with, with its own independence and uh, flexes its autonomy. So, there was no Indian blueprint from day one to unravel pa East Pakistan. I'm saying, and this is what I want to say is, it was Indira's visits to the camps in West Bengal, looking at the maimed, the mutilated, the horror of raped women, because Siddharth Shankaraya's governor in West Bengal took her to see it. It is after seeing those camps, this was about, say, June or July 71, 
and the problems occurred. Operation Searchlight, the crackdown began on 25th March 71. Indra came back to Delhi and had a meeting with uh, uh, General Maniksha and that's the first time she uttered, we've got to do something. Between then and that visit, New Delhi's policy was, let it, mm. let, let it stay away from this headache, it's not our business. Although it's, it is disturbing to see what's happening because it will have repercussions for us. But it was after that she decided to take an activist Indian position on the plank of humanitarianism to actually intervene. And you keep talking about genocide, uh, which happened in Bangladesh. Uh, that is, you're referring to the, uh, the West Pakistani army coming there and killing the people and raping women, which is, you know... Documented. Which, yeah, which is the, uh, the, the commission which was held in... Um, Hamidur Rahman report, which has never been published, no. even the redacted version, and then some versions were destroyed. And apparently, one version is there, but within which the, I have uh, in my office. Oh, uh, which, the Rahman commission report. But I was given to understand that most uh, the the parks uh, that was redacted and published by the, the India Today installments, yeah. but the original was quashed because Bhutto did not Bhutto did not want to antagonize the army any more than he already had. Who already who held him responsible for the breakup by not coming to an arrangement with, with Mujib politically, or the country would not have unraveled. And it was in Bhutto's Zulfikrani was Bhutto's interest as prime minister that he gave a sock to the army on this count that I will not have proceedings against others, uh, against uh, army of officers or court martials and the like. And thinking that they would be grateful to him because he saved their skin and that they would in turn save his skin, which was not to be on the midnight of fifth July, nineteen seventy-seven. And now, when we come to it, you, you just explained that India took an uh, activist stand uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, intervening in, in, in Bangladesh on the basis of uh, humanity, human rights. Now we are what? Uh, we are almost 50 years further. Bangladesh is, uh, turns 50. It's a middle-aged yes. country now. Why? And at, at one point in time, it's uh, some years ago, its GDP even surpassed India in a rate of growth. Mm -hmm. So that is something admirable in itself to say that they managed to get themselves going uh, as such that way. Um, now, if we come to this back again, uh, why hasn't the world, you know, with you know the safeguardians of human rights, why didn't they intervene then? First of all, well, in, in probably because the Cold War was going on, and that is your answer. You've given yes, it. Yes, yes. But now coming, why hasn't ever? the UN, uh, the ICJ, someone picked up this issue and said, well, we need to, because Bhutto at that time decided not to pursue this, not to punish this. Well, okay, those are, those are political considerations he made and history is, you know, history is full of mistakes. But at some point of time, sometimes the world, the safeguardians of uh, human rights, they take, take responses. Why hasn't been there any voice? And I don't hear it from the Bang uh, Bangladeshi people as well. To, Take this issue forward and say, well, we need to set the record straight. There was a genocide. At least we need to hold the people accountable if if we can't punish them now because it's 50 years ago. Why isn't this this narrative in the, in the world and also not in Bangladesh? Because Bangladesh is not deemed to be uh, an area of interest for the powers that be currently. Uh, and it's an economic powerhouse. Uh, to a certain extent, yes. To a certain extent, yes. But Pakistan, of course, would hog the limelight because of security considerations and not to antagonize Pakistan. Now, that is a, something which the US, the UK and 
most Western European states would not want to do so because of the security factor and the terrorism that generates from there and to have Pakistan on its on their good side because that would be seen as an affront to Pakistan and Pakistan could um, take umbrage to that and obviously um, let loose a havoc for them. Okay. Now that is just one way of looking at it. Would you support it as a historian or would you say this, this should happen? It has happened in the Bangladeshi context mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Uh, we had Myanmar recently being, uh, being yes. in the ICJ, so things can be done. It can be done. It can be done. Uh, there are some still living and of course uh, it is for Pakistan also, which is wishful thinking, for Pakistani history textbooks to acknowledge. Within Pakistani, academ uh, acade Pakistani academics do do so. Mm -hmm. Not the nationalist, loud-mouthed idiots who come on 9pm primetime shows and who obviously, uh, you know, monopolize the headlines, but serious Pakistanis do concede that. And occasionally you do hear even Pakistani politicians like Nawaz Sharif of uh, some a decade or so ago said, Mujib should have been prime minister, end of discussion. Mm. Of course, he can afford to say that now with the passage of time. Whether he would have said it as a Punjabi back in 71 is another matter. So there is some understanding in Pakistan. It's tacit. But of course, uh, in the Orient, you don't want to lose your face and honor. Mm. So an apology could not be obviously forthcoming. And that becomes difficult. You don't hear even Pakistan making regret, stating even a tacit regret, which the Japanese do for the massacres yeah. in Nanking. Yeah. The Japanese have never apologized, but they've expressed regret. There has been nothing of the sort officially seen from Pakistan, even at the, at the level of a regret as what happened. But at one point, I remember when a certain spat took place a few years ago, when a Pakistani High Commission official in Dhaka said some remark, I think it was declared person on Grata to leave, about, um, you know, it was ours at one point in time, so what's all this talk about Bangladesh? And that official said when confronted by that your remarks were unpleasant and undiplomatic, why should we apologize for having lost half of Pakistan? Mm. Now, that That's is a very, yeah. very telling remark. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm grateful to the diplomat for making that remark because to me as a historian, it tells me as to what the Pakistani disposition towards the entire question is. Why should I apologize for losing my home to anyone? Now, when we, this is Bangladesh, and then you, you talked about the paranoia with India. And then you know this uh, this dismemberment of, of, of Pakistan into from of West or East Pakistan into Bangladesh and Pakistan. Where do you put you know this? Is it, is it the paranoia? You know the, the radicalization of society in Pakistan. Was that always going to be so because of the fact that it was founded on religion? So it, it religion basically excludes a lot of people then. Or did this paranoia and then the losing of, of uh, you know, the breaking up of Pakistan, did this feed into it? Of course, we have the Cold War and the Afghan War, but this radicalization of society, did, did all these things speed up the process? Again, like divide and quit and the Indira thing, there are fallacies in popular views and I take a different view. Mm. Um, you can say that uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan led to the what is again in popular dining rooms called the Kalashnikov culture being ushered into Pakistan and poor Pakistanis have suffered and that's what uh, the mainstream middle class educated Pakistanis would have us believe which is complete nonsense as far as I'm concerned because Pakistan didn't unravel but the problems were the antecedents were already there after Jinnah's death 
the objectives resolution that I mentioned that was pointed out in lieu of the constitution which came into effect in 1956. Uh, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, was the minority's minister and he left for India, though he was Jinnah's showboy Hindu minister in the first cabinet, because certain rights were going to be granted as privileges to non-Muslims, basic obligations towards the non-Muslim population. But they were written out. And Liyakat Ali Khan couldn't do anything about it in the proceedings in power in the cabinets in Karachi in 48 and 49 and 50 until his death later. So this whole Prime notion of some so that so that was the first sign. And then of course the anti-Amadiya riots that ushered in West Punjab in 1953, thanks to Maulana Maududi and the Jamaat, who also wanted Zafrullah Khan to be removed uh, from the United oh, Nations yeah, as a foreign yes. representative because an Islamic polity can't be represented by an infidel and that to an infidel who was an ex supposedly ex-Muslim. That was their plan to test the government and its credentials and sincerity to Islam. So these problems were already there when Jinnah wanted and sought an Islamic polity. So when some Pakistanis or some people give the excuse... It has nothing to do with the Soviets and the KGB or the Red Army. Mm -hmm. That they the had no choice and they had to do this. As I said, it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. For a historian who takes a longer view, it's nonsense. But they took this policy even... And, you know, okay, then the, 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 the radicalization of the society was, was, was inevitable. Then, of course, uh, the Afghan uh, war came in. But then when this happened, it didn't, you know, it didn't put a lid on it, on this, on this radicalization of society after the Soviets left. Or oh, it only engendered further because it was felt that if we could triumph against the infidel Red Army or godless communists, mm -hmm. why can't we do that with neighboring India and Kashmir? Mm -hmm. And why can't we do it elsewhere too where Muslims are ostensibly suffering and to liberate our Muslim brethren? That became the modus operandi for such thinking of the Arab Afghanis, Afghanis, the jihadists within Pakistan. And on every occasion, they could test the government's credentials and hold the government to account by holding the government, government's feet to the fire. That are you Islamic enough to meet our requirements of what an Islamic polity would be? Mm -hmm. And of course, that is where every Pakistani administration has found itself navigating a very, very perilous course. Which they which then the Red Mosque incident, yeah. the Red Mosque incident with yeah. Musharraf, exactly. which would, would not have taken place until the Chinese had put pressure on him to sort it out because Chinese were being attacked in Islamabad, including those Chinese massage parlors and Chinese were being arrested and held up by Muslim militants. And uh, as someone once said, it is a very foolish Pakistani general who would not take a phone call from the Chinese and act upon it. They can ignore others, including Americans, but they would think twice before ignoring the Chinese. And now this policy, because, you know, our main interview was on partition, but we, of course, also have to touch upon these, you know, normal today's issues, uh, which, which the subcontinent faces. So after 2000, after, after the Afghan-Soviet war, the, this, the, the state of Pakistan kept this policy running in order to ostensibly free their uh, Muslim brothers elsewhere. Then came 2001, the war on terror. Which was, Junaid, as he and as a historian, a repeat of 1979, mm -hmm. because Pakistan was in the doldrums, 2001 was an opening for Musharraf to again ingratiate himself to the West, as Zia did after the coup in 77. Mm -hmm. Pakistan was something of a pariah for the counter administration, and with the nuclear uh, uh, sanctions that were going to come into effect, which they did with the Symington uh, Agreement Amendment later in passed through Congress. 
But because of the Soviet invasion, suddenly Zia found himself as the favorite poster boy of every Western capital. And his fortunes changed. And Musharraf found himself in the, in the same, same situation after 9-11. Now there are people, analysts, Pakistanis, others, Westerners also, some say that because this Frankenstein monster has turned against this Pakistani state itself, in most notably in the shape of TTP, the Tariqe Taliban Pakistan, um, and that Pakistan has actually stopped this policy. They do not sponsor terrorism anymore. You can turn off the tap for a while and you can always turn it back on again. Mm. And in so doing, you show who's boss. I can pay you, but I can also destroy you. Mm. And that's what the Pakistan team state does. That you step out of line and you know what's coming your way. You stick to the course and do as you're told by us. And this is to the motley assortment groups that they've spawned. Um, everything will be fine so long as... Uh, just remember that we butter your bread. Mm -hmm. So this is a tactic. It is, it is not a tactic. It is a Strategy. guiding principle of fa Pakistani foreign policy, mm -hmm. which goes back to October 47. And you should be telling me, me this rather than vice versa, that jihad was the cornerstone of Pakistan's first war within the Indian Dominion, come 22nd October 1947. Mm -hmm. Pakistan adopted jihad as a tactic. The Pakistan army under Jinnah, as governor general adopted it as a tactic in the war with india so jihad and spawning such groups which the general aiding, himself has ridden in in raiders, uh, raiders kashmir. in kashmir and aiding and abetting such groups has been there since 1947 so none of this kalashnikov culture talk stands uh holds water mm. it can be dismissed out the window right away and what happened uh when uh the raiders came into uh, kashmir and the war started, uh, Julian. Maudri goes on air, I mean, rather declares that this is an un Islamic war with India. Yes, Maulana Maudri, who left from Aurangabad, which is present in Maharashtra, India, for the new state of Pakistan, despite the fact that the Jamaat was against the creation of Pakistan because it felt it was un Islamic nation state, anathema to Islam, and all that. Mm -hmm. But still, he moved as a Muhajir thinking that half a loaf is better than none, so maybe I could go to a state and forge something of an Islamic polity and I'll have a say in matters. So he moves to Karachi, uh, to Rabwa, in, uh, just outside, uh, to Ichra, sorry, uh, which is a suburb of Lahore. And once war occurs, Maududi, as a theologian, obviously speaks his mind, and why should he not, to be fair to him, this war is utterly illegitimate and un-Islamic, and he promptly finds himself picked up by the authorities overnight and thrown into the clink. Yes. This happened in 47. Mm. Be uh, so why? Because Morudi felt that the war cannot be justified against India since you could have a conventional war with India if you wanted to as one state against another. Yeah. That's warfare for you. But if you're going to call your say that this is a jihad to liberate a Muslim territory, that is complete rubbish because you that just got independence a few months ago from the British is not exactly a true genuine Islamic polity. Yeah. You have not created an ideal Islamic state or an ummah. So, you're not so you cannot you cannot go to the wellsprings of Islamic doctrine, Islamic texts and covenants of war and uh, justice and peace and declare a war on that plank.
you can do so if you wanted to against India on, on a secular, irreligious basis. But don't put on this show of being a Muslim state. Don't wrap yourself in the mantle of Islamic piety and then conduct a war and give us to believe that you are conducting a war for Muslims by Muslims because that is complete rubbish. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to buy it and I wouldn't as an Islamic theologian and it is my duty to call it out. And it is incumbent upon me to say that this is un-Islamic and uh, Najah's impermissible. And you can imagine what, how that went down. And he could have been arrested and he could have, it would have led to treason and capital punishment too, which was on the books in those days. It was a miracle he survived, which he did. And then of course, stoke up problems a few months later in West Punjab with the anti ahmadiyya disturbances in 1953. Guzin, you have of course had a, had, had a very busy week. And uh, as you also told me in the, in the afternoon, you don't feel very well, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, uh, try to come to an end because partition is, of course, we can keep talking about it for hours. Now, coming to the end of this, a few questions and, and, you know, would like to have your, maybe your, a bit of opinion, uh, you know, apart from your uh, hat as a historian, but also a bit of opinion. I can tell you what has happened. I can't tell you what will happen. No, I'm not a futurologist. No, but the, exactly. Do you think now, almost eight decades afterwards, Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's a historical fact, partition. Do you think it happened for the good? Or... Yeah, I can answer that. Um, or it should have never happened and these two countries, or three countries, should have actually stayed uh, into a unified India? At some point, it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying partition was for the good. There was mm -hmm. no, nothing good came out of it. Mm -hmm. And 75 years, we're still living with its legacy, sorry, and problems. But there was no way out because there was a complete breakdown of trust. There was, it was a zero sum game between all the political leaders at that time. London was wringing its hands in despair, despite its best efforts to bring everyone on board. It was not happening and they had to exist because the situation was becoming ungovernable as I covered ground for you on that. And also, um, please remember this, my last point, if not uh, a bombshell I want to throw now. Most people don't realize this. Again, the fashionable crowd which talks about the cabinet mission plan, which was the best of the worst solutions. Jared, what was the cabinet mission plan? A confederation uh, that would have run from Baluchistan to Bengal. Mm -hmm. And is that it? It was to be revisited every 10 years. In 1957, the units that became Pakistan could decide whether they wanted to opt out of it or not. Yeah. How was Nehru and India or the Congress going to run a country with that permanent Democlean sword and blackmail held to their heads? Jinnah died. Nobody knew he was suffering. It's all very well to say that he would have died and nothing would have happened. But did you and I or anyone else know he was dying? Nobody did. So that argument also can be dismissed or the excuse rather that it's made. Read the cabinet mission plan again in, um, in the directives. The plan was to be visited decadently, repeat, every decade. Should India continue in the shape it would be, as the British had, would leave it, or certain parts could go their way? It's an impossible thing to govern. How can you run a country no. like this? How was Nehru to have his five-year plans? Mm -hmm. How were you to institute democracy, industry, and the like? And how do you plan for the future knowing that certain disgruntled elements could always leverage that against you? Uh, because of a fractious polity and even now Indian politics are so fractious 
and there are secessionist movements mm -hmm. even now in India. Let's not uh, dismiss that. Mm -hmm. And they have been for the last few decades. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, this was there. Nobody mentions this aspect of the cabinet mission plan, Jameed. I repeat, and I want to keep repeating at every FSAS forum that you give me this. The, it was etched in black and white, in the, which was given to uh, the powers that be. And Jinnah accepted the cabinet mission plan, mm -hmm. in principle. Yeah. That because in a way he felt his Pakistan was in a way fulfilled. That if, and of course he died, but we wouldn't know that he was going to die. But those later after him could have pulled the rug anytime. So partition was inevitable. At some and point so at some point it had to happen. And yeah. uh, was Bangladesh, East and West Pakistan, that partition, was that also inevitable? Well, Jinnah wanted the entire Bengal and Punjab provinces for himself. Mm -hmm. That is his argument with Mountbatten all the time, driving Mountbatten around the bend. No, but 71, was that inevitable? But I have to answer it this way, mm -hmm. that uh, to have a united Bengal and to have a united Pakistan. Now, let's talk about the united Bengal bit in Bangladesh. One formula that was also mooted, Junaid, uh, uh, was this, that there will be three countries back in 47. India, Pakistan, and a third united Bengal was also mooted. between. Supposedly, Sarah Chandra Bose and Surawadi of, uh, from the Muslim element side of it. The man actually responsible for the great Calcutta killings. Mm -hmm. as, uh, and also responsible for the Bengal famine of 42, which Churchill gets blamed for when he was food civil supplies minister in, in uh, 42 when the Bengal famine occurred. He was mayor of Calcutta when, the, uh, when he told the police to go on leave for the 72 hours and the orgy of ri uh, riots and rapes and murders that took place in September 46 which set off everything as I told you. Uh, there was supposed to be a united Bengal, but can you imagine, would it have survived like a Lebanon today with Christian and Muslim elements? And look what Lebanon is unraveling today. It was pie in the sky thinking, and guess what? The British actually accepted it. Atlee in principle had said, I'm okay with the united Bengal. Jinnah said, I'm okay with the united Bengal too. So what happened to that country called Bengal today? The Hindu Mahasabha put pressure on the Congress that we will not allow it to happen because we will not allow uh, Hindus who are, a, who are not exactly a full-fledged majority, but it was neck to neck. Mm -hmm. Muslims were only slightly larger demographically speaking in Bengal, well, United Bengal. Sense. Yeah, we, we cannot leave them at their peril. And the Hindu Mahasabha put pressure on the Congress that no, you will vote for partition and to have a join into West Bengal and we are not having a United Bengal. So was it inevitable? 71 um, would this no also... 71 71 yeah coming back to 71 uh, as I mentioned that uh, would that at some point of time anyhow happen no today because as I said it ran for 24 years as a show mm -hmm. even as a flop show but it ran yeah kudos to Pakistan on that count uh, I mean could it have it... run until 2023 4 25 maybe not okay. if they had continued in that same vein exactly but if they had gotten their act together in Islamabad, and if, if uh, Mujib's point, and even Mujib did not exactly want independence when it came. Mm -hmm. He also chickened out after yeah. being released from jail and going to London and returning to Dhaka. Uh, too bad Bengalis don't like to hear that about their father of the nation. But he chickened out that now, my God, I have a state to run. He wanted a confederation. He wanted an EU style running with separate constitutions, separate budgets, separate currencies, but only uh, defense and uh, foreign affairs and uh, a few minimums at, uh, to be conducted at the federal level. But he did not really want, of course he said, and Mujib was quite a man given to bluster and rhetoric and fiery speeches and all that, 
but he chickened out, but he got what he wanted at the end of uh, Bangladesh and he had to run it and he paid for it with his life. Jinnah got the Pakistan that he wanted and died a few months away, hacking away in a, to death. And India got uh, what was left of the rump of the Indian Empire. And of course, you can't look into the future, uh, but I'm still going to try. Um, two questions, you know, molded into one. Do you think somewhere down the line, because, you know, the world is becoming much and much more interdependent while being very independent. Look at Europe, independent countries, different languages, but very interdependent, mainly because of economics. Do you see at some point of time the subcontinent walking that path no. as well? No. no. Uh, as a conservative historian and cynic, I don't see that happening. Okay. And if uh, if you want a sign, and it's a cynical sign and a cynical way to end the program. And, and no, and, and the second question. What is SARC? Where is SARC today? The they second can barely trade, much less talk to each other or convene conferences and summits. So the second the second, not the second and the last question that is, and maybe that you can end much more on a positive note. Two partitions happened. 47, 71. If you don't see the first thing happening of maybe this situation getting better, you see another partition. I don't see borders being redrawn either by India or Pakistan. Uh, despite Fispera's tendencies within these states. No, you have Balochistan, you have yes. uh, you have the Afghan Pashtun, yes. Iran line, you yeah. have a lot of issues. Yeah, I take your point. But um, the Pakistan state is too strong as a sledgehammer to come down and would come down with all its might against such elements to the point of even decimating them to the last man standing. The Pashtunistan question is different now because of the Afghan factor thrown in, which throws up so many other variables that were hitherto impossible. They were always there latent for the 50s with the question of Pashtunistan. What about a war in this region? Between these countries. I would not rule out a war. I would not never rule out and a war. And that could maybe form the foundation of another partition. Geographical changes happen, of course, in the consequences of a war. And a war can be not only between India and Pakistan, it can also be between India and China. That that cannot be dismissed. The Sino-Indian conflict has not been resolved. Mm -hmm. And with each passing day, it becomes even worse because what could have been sorted out 20 or 30 years ago could have been you could have grasped the nettle to do it but the Indians and the Chinese did not. And the room for maneuvering becomes less with each pa passage, with the passage of time, uh, which both the Indians and Chinese don't realize. Uh, it's because it becomes a question of face and honor and not giving in. You don't rule honor. out a war in South Asia. No, I don't rule out a war at all in South Asia. A full-fledged conventional war, sub-conventional sub wars we have seen with all these insurrections happening. Yep. And it's going to be They're a part going of, on now. And it's, it's going to be a part of the fabric. I mean, it was South Asia which created uh, suicide terrorism with the LTTE. Mm. It was not the Middle East, just remember no, that. No. Uh, uh, the Palestinians owe it to the Tamil Tigers for that, mm. as it were. But I do not rule out a full-fledged war ever happening in decades to come. I, because I do not see a rosy future for the subcontinent. So historians uh, who are studying today uh, decades later, South Asia still remains a very interesting place. Yes, and if I'm proven wrong, no one will be better pleased than I. Thank you very much, Prasine. Thank you for coming. Thank you.